0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle,
1: a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
0: Hello, everyone. What's happening? This is the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today on the program, my guest is... Chetna Maru, author of the debut novel *Western Lane*.
1: You know, it wasn't what I had intended. I wasn't consciously thinking about the immigrant experience when I was, you know, writing my first drafts. I kind of feel my way through the writing, and I think that anything that I'm interested in just comes in. So I think it is is definitely in there, and there is these questions of how the. The generations of the family, the older generations of the family have a certain life and the girls have a different life and, and the, there's a tension between those two, but also tensions between the communities in the book, which I think is a very common experience in, in Britain in this kind of town, a multiracial town in the 1980s, and there was this, there was there was integration, but there was also conflict between, between the communities. And I mean the, the, the white community and the Indian community.
0: Okay, that was Chetna Maru. Her new novel, Western Lane, is now available from Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. It is her debut. It is a wonderful book. And it is uh, it's a grief novel. It's the story of a bereaved family in Britain in the late 1980s, a Jain family a father, and three girls grieving the loss of their wife and mother and adjusting to their new reality. So what do I say about this book? It's one of these books that I talk about all the time on this show. It's about 150 pages, and it really packs a punch. So impressive line by line. And a book that works incredibly well in the white space, as they say, this is a, an incredibly well-observed novel. It's great at the level of gesture. It's great at the level of implication. It's great at the level of misunderstanding. And it's great at the level of the unsaid. It's very emotionally astute, very moving book. It's a coming of age story. It's about sisters that I say that already. And it's also about sport and in particular, the sport of squash which adds fascination, especially for me. I don't play squash, but I was into it. And I'm very pleased to have Chetna Maru on this show today and to get to catch her as she makes this fine debut. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of the novel Margot by Wendell Stevenson, who incidentally guested on this very program not too long ago. Had a great talk with Wendell Stevenson. You should check that out. Margot is a coming-of-age novel about a young woman named Margot Thornson growing up in the 20th century in a dynastic family in New York. There's the Park Avenue apartment and the place on Long Island, and then there's Margot, who is growing up in the 1950s and 1960s, and she's a science nerd and doesn't really fit in with her lineage or with her mother's plans for her existence. And this is the 1960s. So she's growing up in a time that is awash in social change and political change and tension. And it is a world of new possibility for young women in particular. I found it totally engrossing. I loved this novel. Again, it is called Margot, available from W.W. Norton & Company, and it is by Wendell Stevenson, so check that one out. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Everything's free. Did you know that? There are now over 800 of these conversations floating around out there. You can listen to all of them free. It's accessible. There's no paywall on this show by design, and that's the way I want it. I want this stuff to be out there, but I also need to survive so that I can keep making this show if I don't eat I will die and then I won't podcast (laughs) so I'm counting on people who listen to this show regularly in particular if you are listening right now and you listen regularly or if you listen sporadically but every time you do you get something from it you can support this show for as little as one dollar a month I try to make it as easy as possible I want it to be a no-brainer like oh one dollar a month no problem and it's a sliding scale, so it can accommodate whatever you have to offer. One dollar a month, three, five, ten, twenty. And as you move up the scale, you get merchandise. It's all very easy and very self-explanatory over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. I would greatly appreciate your kind support. You should also know that you can get Other People merch. There's t-shirts, there's sweatshirts, there's baby clothes, there's onesies, fully branded onesies for your child. Welcome your newborn into this life with an Other People onesie. You can get Other People gear just by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Scroll down, you'll see the t-shirt. It's easy to, to locate. The Other People podcast A weekly newsletter. I do a weekly email newsletter. Did you know that? It's free. You can sign up at the show's website, otherppl.com, or at my website, bradlisty.com, and I will email you once a week. That's it. I will not inundate you. And my newsletter is pretty straightforward. It's an enumerated list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting. It's a reminder about the latest episodes of the podcast, of course, but I think it's pretty straightforward. So sign up for the newsletter if you are so inclined. If it's not too much trouble, I would really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen to this podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it is possible to write a review, write a quick review. This helps me find new listeners. It helps in the algorithm. The more ratings and reviews that a show gets, the more listeners it gets in general. You can also go to YouTube and watch the Other People Podcast. This is a very new development, or a relatively new development. And the Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. It has had one for a while, but only recently did I start broadcasting video of these episodes. So go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you find the Other People Podcast YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. As well, you can watch clips or highlights of these conversations on the other people TikTok page, the other people Instagram feed, or on Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. so follow the show on social media wherever you are. If you have feedback for me, if you want to let me know what you think or tell me a story, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. It is relatively recent. It just published last year. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a work of auto fiction, and you can read it or you can listen to it. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. If you would like to investigate my psyche, you can read my novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, once again, my guest is Chetna Maru. Her debut novel is called Western lane and it has just published in the United States to acclaim. It is available now from Ferrar Strauss and Giroux Chetna Maru lives in London. And she has published short stories in a variety of esteemed publications, including the Paris review, the stinging fly and the Dublin review. In 2022, she won the Paris Reviews Plimpton Prize for Fiction, and now here she is publishing her debut. Again, it is called Western Lane, and just had a great time meeting her and talking to her at this moment. So here is my conversation with Chetna Maru, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Western Lane.
1: It's the story of a young girl who is driven to become an athlete by her father uh, as they struggle with grief. That's the short answer.
0: <laughs> That's the short answer. So she, her name is Gopi, correct?
1: Yeah. I, mean, I, I kind of say Gopi. Um, Go,
0: Gopi. Okay. And yeah. she's 11. She's 11. And she is the narrator of the book
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in the first person. And it is a retrospective first person.
1: Yeah. So she's looking back at this time in her childhood. Yeah.
0: Why don't we have you read just to kind of give listeners a taste? You're going to read from the very beginning of the book where you bring people into the story. You introduce uh, Gopi and her narration.
1: I don't know if you have ever stood in the middle of a squash court on the tee and listened to what's going on next door. What I'm thinking of is the sound from the next court of a ball hit clean and hard. It's a quick, low, pistol shot of a sound, with a close echo. The echo, which is the ball striking the wall of the court, is louder than the shot itself. This is what I hear when I remember the year after our mother died, and our father had us practising at Western Lane two, three, four hours a day. It must have been an evening session after school the first time I noticed it. My legs were so tired, I didn't know if I could keep going, and I was just standing on the tee with my racket head down, looking at the side wall that was smudged with the washed-out marks from all the balls that had skimmed its surface. I was supposed to serve, and my father would return with a drive, and I would folly, and my father would drive, and I would folly, aiming always for the red service line on the front wall. My father was standing far back, waiting. I knew from his silence that he wasn't going to move first and all I could do was serve and volley or disappoint him. The smudges on the wall blurred one into the other and I thought that surely I would fall. That was when it started up. A steady, melancholy rhythm from the other court, the shot and its echo over and over again, like some sort of deliverance. I could tell it was one person conducting a drill and I knew who it was. I stood there listening and the sound poured into me, into my nerves and bones. And it was with a feeling of having been rescued that I raised my racket and served.
0: Lovely. And a great illustration of how well you bring the reader into This place, a place that I think is foreign to most readers, a squash court. Uh, Most people, squash is not a mainstream sport. I have some familiarity with it. I had a friend who played squash, but it's one of those things. Like you either play it or you have like one friend who plays. (laughs) At least in in you know where I grew up or whatever. So it's a credit to you that I was never lost. I mean, it's a racket sport. I played tennis when I was a kid, so I did have some familiarity with racket sports and. On that level, I think I could understand it maybe a little bit more easily. But mm. I think somebody who's never picked up a racket in their life could read this book and follow along. That's not a simple task. Did you struggle with that to write that and to make sure? I, I, I have to believe that you were thinking of that reader, somebody who is not familiar with squash and how to keep them oriented, right?
1: Yeah, I don't. It's probably not one of the things I really struggled with. I think i was just able to stay in that the physical and the physical space of the court and the physical of movement it felt quite natural to me to write that yeah
0: i have to believe you played squash as a child
1: N- no um so i'm not a competitive person and as a child i was extremely uncoordinated and um, so i didn't do sports at all and um, so i didn't play squash until very late teens and then and not properly until my 20s and 30s. I did always like the squash court and I I kind of felt at ease in the squash court I took lessons.
0: So wait you you, so you did take lessons did -hmm. you grow up going even though you weren't playing as a kid did you have somebody in your family who played did you have like an introduction to it or you, you this is something you came to as an adult?
1: Yeah, I came to as an adult. I think, I think my, this is the first time I've thought of this, actually. My sister played really, like, she probably only played two or three times, I think. But I just remember going with her. I don't think I even went inside at that point to the courts. I mean, my brother basically went and dropped her off by walking her there. Um, But yeah, apart from that, no. Wow.
0: Okay. Well, even more impressive because the, I think the, the rules of the game, you obviously have to have a certain mastery of to write about it. And then a squash court, I can understand the physical space of it being somewhat easy to write about because it is a confined space. It's not super complicated. You know, it's like a you're in a box essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the motion, the strategy, the mental aspects of the game, describing all of that stuff felt so vivid and real and lived in did you have did you talk to squash players i want to say in the acknowledgements you thank one of the famous squash players that you talk about in the book it, did this person help you like uh refine those sections or did you have oh, somebody no
1: no to... no 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 so in terms of the the more famous squash players it's their books it's it's having read their books that really helped me and i was i think i mentioned a few but a couple in particular um so jahangir khan is is the player who's kind of I think widely considered the greatest player in the history of the sport, and he, the father in the story, is quite obsessed with him, and he wrote a book which I um, I think I reference I do reference in the book as as well with his coach, and that's a, it's a, it's, I wish I had it with me to show you because it it's one of those books it's got pictures and like red arrows and where to hit the ball and all of that, but also kind of commentaries on the game and almost like a memoir of his life as well. And then the other one is Murder in the Squash Court by Jonah Barrington, who is also a, a, a great player who started playing quite late. And I think he initially was playing tennis or badminton or a different sport. And his book is, is phenomenal.
0: Wait, it's called Murder in the Squash Court? Uh-huh. Is it about yeah. a murder?
1: No, I mean, it's a it's an instructional kind of manual or more about kind of how to how to win at squash. What are the kind of attributes and he talks about a lot of the players as well in that book
0: okay well i believed every line in the squash court scenes and came away from this book believing that you were a competitive champion squash player. (laughs) credit to you (laughs) which Uh, i suppose is very far from the truth but uh that's amazing and you know i read in the new york times the review that just published it was written by ivy pakoda who has guested mm-hmm. on this show. And ah. when I read her review, it all came flooding back to me. And and this is, I, you know, I think I was talking before we started recording about how bad my memory is. And she was writing about her own days as a competitive squash player. And it suddenly like flooded back because I remember talking to her about that on this show. and had. Wow,
1: I didn't realize that you had her on. Wow. Okay, I'll be going to find that.
0: Well, she was a pro squash player who like traveled the earth playing squash for money, which I didn't even know was a thing, you know, like it's just not on my radar. And so I remember when she was here, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And we talked a little bit about that part of her life. And it was really central. But in addition to bringing it all back, I think reading that review made me understand how that could inform a writer it made me understand the emotional context of the game or at least one emotional context of the game. The lo- like She talks about the loneliness of mm. squash. Is that something that you, like I, I'm assuming you read the review. Yes. When you read her review, did it make you understand your work in new ways or were the things that she was saying things that you yourself had considered as you were writing about the loneliness of it?
1: Yeah, I think it came across so strongly in her her review that it did make me think about it more closely, and I just loved her reaction to that kind of the first scene of the book with the um, the echo and what she which, found. In which that you echo, just read, which I yeah, and I I think I was aware of the sort of that it's the emptiness and the loneliness, but also I think there is is this piece in the squash court as well so I don't think it is only lonely it can be and the loneliness is partly that and I I think she Ivy Pakoda mentions this is the you're in there on your own everything you've got to do you've got to do on your own once you're playing the game but with Gopi I think she also has just in like very strong connection with who she's playing with and this sense of... Who, who
0: is who is a young a young man named Ged?
1: Yes. So Ged is 13. He's the son of a woman who works in the sports centre. Yeah, I think, I mean, they develop a, a very strong, almost romantic friendship. And on the court, there is just this connection between them. But she also has this connection, or I think an awareness of those players that her father talks about. So Jahangir Khan, who I mentioned, and all the other players. And that their mythologies become kind of part of her her way of seeing the world or her way of thinking so although there is that deep loneliness I think it's also a place in which she has connections
0: well I think if I'm remembering correctly and and please uh, if I'm wrong feel free to interject but I want to say that Jahangir Khan became a great squash player in the wake of the loss of his brother. That's in the book, yeah. right? Yeah. Was it him? Yes. Yeah. So I think like that framed it for me pretty well that this all time great squash player who went, I think five years without losing a match or something extraordinary like that was beating every great player who came his way, had lost his brother, I believe in like adolescence mm-hmm. and then like kind of Became hyper focused on squash, and maybe I think played the game for his lost brother in the way that we kind of carry on for those whom we lose. That made it like a psychological and emotional sense to me, and I can imagine how Gopi would be hearing that story and making it into a kind of personal mythology, right? Something yeah. to kind of frame her frame her own life around.
1: Yeah, and he had always Jahangir Khan had always played but I think that what I take took away from his own sort of writing about his life is is exactly what you said that when his brother died he was was playing for his brother as well
0: so this story takes place in the late 1980s in an unspecified area of England like Bedfordshire I think is maybe the one place that gets mentioned am I forgetting anything I think
1: yeah I mean and you could I don't I don't reference the name of the town but um various references mean that that you could work out that it's luton i'm not sure i didn't deliberately not name it but somehow it didn't just didn't come up Hmm.
0: interesting that's interesting uh because you know there is this is a 150 page novel and i feel like to a degree that is pretty remarkable this book really works in the white space in the unsaid uh more so than most books. And I think it's part of its its strength and its beauty is that there are all these silences and implications and gestures and suggestions in this book that work on you as a reader and it delivers uh, an emotional weight to the book. It, I think it adds a little bit of mystery even. But I really feel like you're great at that at maybe editing yourself or knowing what not to say <laughs> or knowing how to what do they call it the telling detail you know you'll give a detail that carries within it like five other details that you don't have to actually verbalize and it's also a really emotional book it this book broke my heart these i loved this family i was so rooting for them and just so listeners uh, have a a really clear sense of the stakes i mean you've mentioned it already but we have a family of uh they're a Jain family and could you help us out with like jane is
1: so it's an indian religion or philosophy and the roots are sort of I mean, one of one of the kind of main people that is kind of seen as Bringing Jainism back into the world, it's called Mahavira. It was around, the, and he sort of lived around the time of Buddha. And there is quite a lot of similarity between Buddhism and Jainism, and some differences. And it's kind of quite an open religion in that you know, Jains will quite often just bring in elements of other religions, um, such as Hinduism. So you kind of have, although it is a religion that doesn't have a deity, Jains will often have kind of deities in the house and they might share temples with, with Hindus. Its main kind of principle, I guess, is, is nonviolence. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we are a uh, violent, genocidal species, so that's probably a good one to have in your mind.
0: Yeah. No, no doubt. So you have... Three sisters. We've talked about Gopi. She's 11. Then there's the middle sister. Her name is Kush. Yeah. She's 13. And then the eldest sister is Mona. And they are being raised by their father, whom they call Pa. And their mother has passed away. And we never meet the mother except in memory and really only fleetingly. You know, bits and pieces of the mother exist in the book through. Gopi's memories and conversations or things her sisters might say, but there is this kind of cloud of grief. <laughs> How do you put it? You know, like the, 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 the loss of their mother is relatively recent as I understand it, as the book is unfolding yeah. and it breaks, it broke my heart reading it because it, it seems so accurate in its depictions of how human beings handle grief individually, the conversations around it, the way that the sisters each handle it differently. I have some experience with this. A friend of mine lost a parent when I was a kid, and there were four brothers. And I remember how much the, the eldest brother took on a kind of paternal role in the family, even though he was in eighth grade. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like there's something heartbreaking about that. It was heartbreaking then, you know, but to read this and to see the way that you captured that, that felt that felt really spot on. And actually I wanna I wanna I'm gonna actually read a section of your book to you because I think it was so great the way that you drew Mona, the eldest sister You say, Mona sat in front of the dressing table mirror for long stretches of time. She developed a placid expression, which made her look older. When at last we returned to Western Lane, which is where the squash courts are, I'm interjecting. Uh, She, She seemed to commit herself to a new relationship with Pa and us. She began to manage everything in the house, but she sought Pa's opinions on things and listened to what he said. She served me extra doll and rice and took less for herself. She asked me if I had changed out of my damp clothes after training, and she asked Kush about her homework. She was attentive to us, even kind. Sometimes we could feel the strain in her, the mental and physical burden of being something she was not. Ugh, that crushes me. I mean, it's like an obvious question, but like, are you drawing on personal experience with grief like did you it feels so lived in I, I guess with the squash thing you don't play squash so maybe you don't have any personal experience and you just
1: well, I'm mean, with the squash I, I did play squash for a long long time but not just not as a child so I took lessons okay yeah. but with a mother um my mom passed away when I was in my early 20s so not as a child so that's that's my experience with actual grief
0: okay and How did you, I'm curious to know, like, I guess it's just intuition, your awareness of people and reading a lot and everything that you were able to draw these kinds of dynamics so well, like just talk about that. Like, like each sister, like kind of defining each sister's role in the family, their relationship to their father, the way that a family reacts to grief, everybody's kind of on their own, even though they're together. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely, they are so close and are a collective, but they they exist in their own world as well, and that kind of puts them at odds at times. I mean, I have, I have three sisters, so there are four, four of us and two brothers, and um, so there's six of us in, in all. But I don't know, I think maybe my like landscape of childhood comes as much from... From books and movies, like I, from my childhood, I couldn't really say which movies I would have watched then, but um, I definitely like I, I liked books with siblings. So, yeah, I think probably it's kind of being part of a big family, having lots of cousins, and and books. So, you know, I am trying to think of. I mean, the classic Little Women, Pride and Prejudice, and then closer to when I was writing the book, there was a. A film called Mustang, which was a, I think it's a French film, but about a Turkish family of five sisters, which I thought was great. And um, there was a Japanese film called Our Little Sister, about I think it's three siblings whose father dies, and they invite their half sister to come and live with them. So yeah, I think it's a combination of of my experience and just yeah, books and movies.
0: Okay, well, it's it's very beautifully done. And now I'm going to turn it back to you. I'm going to have you read one more thing because I want listeners to get a sense of this page 43 in the novel. And what you're doing is talking about the sisters going to what is called Gujarati class. I don't know what that is like exactly, but maybe you can give people an idea of just the setup, but there's the, there's the paragraph that begins on page 43 within the class and if I could just have you read that paragraph.
1: Yeah. So they're in the Gujarati class. So Gujarati is the their mother tongue. So the the language that their their parents speak, and the girls speak to all, to their father and all their their aunts and uncles in English, but to their mum they speak in Gujarati because her English isn't isn't good enough. Okay.
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Families have a lot going on. The other girls knew one another because they assembled to perform Kathak dances and plays in the Queensway Hall. They didn't exclude us, but we didn't know what to say to them and they didn't know what to say to us. I became aware of one of the older girls, Jinil, glancing up from her reading to stare at me and my sisters. After Ma died, we had been careful, always, to appear with our hair washed, our nails cut, our clothes clean. We did it instinctively without conferring with one another and we all sensed that this girl must now have found something amiss. We kept our heads down and tried not to think about it but our three voices sounded loud and harsh even with the tinny music from Mother Ben's radio and the buzz of everyone reading around us. I tried to read more quietly which made Harry lean in close until his breath was on my cheek.
0: So the detail about the way that the sisters instinctively make efforts to keep their hair washed, their nails cut, their clothes clean. That's the kind of thing that happens over and over again in the book. It just broke my heart because I was like, Oh yeah, they would do that. Their mom's not around anymore. They're going to school. Do other kids know? Are they going to ask me about it? If, you know, if we don't, if we look on Kempt, then they're going to know that our mother's not around. Like all that psychological understanding is on the page there. And there's just a sweetness to it. And, um, yeah, it, it just, it really affected me. (laughs) I, uh, I don't know, maybe it's because of this, I mean, one of my best friends, this happened to when we were kids and I kind of relived it, uh, a little bit through these sisters and. I really admire the detail work that you're doing here and another thing about this book that you're depicting without really making it super explicit or there's not a, there's not much commentary about it in the narration or in the, in the exchanges between family members but this does feel like a book that is about the immigrant experience no
1: someone else asked me this actually and I I think it is. There, because because I have set it in in this this family who are Gujarati Jains, and so that experience has come in. You know that has has come into the book, but it wasn't what I had intended. I wasn't consciously thinking about the immigrant experience when I was you know writing my first drafts. I was just following this family, but all of that. Every, I think I kind of f- feel my way through the writing and I think that anything that I'm interested in just comes in. So I think it is it's definitely in there and there is these questions of how the, f- the generations of the family, the older generations of the family, have a certain life and the girls have a different life and, and the, there's a tension between those two. But also tensions between the communities in the book, which I think is a very common experience in, in Britain, in this kind of town, a multiracial town in the 1980s. And there was this, there was, there was integration, but there was also conflict between, between the communities. And I mean, the, the, the white community and the Indian community, where, you know, both ways. So where um, the father becomes friendly with a, with a white woman who works in the sports centre, and you can feel the disapproval of the community about this friendship,
0: the Gujarati community.
1: That's right, yeah. And but there's also you know between the Pakistani and Indian community where Simona so likes a Pakistani boy, but she knows that she couldn't enter any romantic, or she knows that she couldn't easily enter a romantic relationship with him because he's Pakistani, not Indian. But there's also on the estate where the family live there's this feeling of threat and violence towards the family. So the girls go out um, behind the house, there's a fort and they play there and they're kind of amazed that nobody chases them out of the fort. And they come home from school with kind of ripped torn clothes and bruises. They, they avoid the underpass. So it's, I don't know. It's not obvious in the in the book, but I think I think you can feel those kind of tensions.
0: What about Fourth Avenue? This dog. <laughs> like, there's a lot of like great like he feels like very symbolic like a very symbolic presence in the book, and I like I especially the I won't spoil it too much, but there's a couple of appearances by Fourth Avenue, and I think the final appearance, I was like, whoa, the return of Fourth Avenue. Like, what does this mean? <laughs> uh, but. Is that maybe tied to what you're talking about? Is Fourth Avenue somehow like? Because there, there's like, like this, you know, vague threat. This dog shows up, looks kind of like menacing. Yeah,
1: I think that's part of it, and I think, I think he is that kind of threat, but also this kind of. I don't. know, Sometimes is, is, analyzing your own book too much can feel a bit strange, can't it? But, sure. Um, this is kind of a joy into a world outside of the girl's experience, so or a, a world that is beyond their senses in a way. Because he comes in, and then strange things start happening.
0: So, you you just touched on it a little bit, but I, I'm always curious, like how books begin for writers. How did this book begin for you? Like, where what was the entry point? Was it a character, a character's name, the title? A squash court?
1: Yeah, it was the feeling of being inside a squash court with with a voice saying there were three of us. And I I knew like immediately it was three sisters inside a squash court and I knew which one was narrating, which one was saying there were three of us. I knew there was a father on the balcony um, instructing them and I knew they all felt like this presence of this absent mother. So it was just it was that it's just the feeling (laughs) of all of that
0: and that came to you at like the keyboard one day or were you like
1: I can't remember I can't actually remember the place
0: how long did it take you to write it
1: so from the from the time when I had that feeling to when I finished was three years but in that time there were big gaps like a year and six months where I wasn't working on this novel I was working on other stories
0: it feels because it just feels so honed that's the feeling I have you know with a a book like this I've talked endlessly on this show about uh, my love for short novels novels that fall in in like the 45 to 65,000 word range and ones that feel like there's just no wasted motion. This is, uh, like a perfect example of that kind of book. And I think whenever I read one or when I read this book, I was like, wow, in my imagination, I was like, Chetna has been working on this book for 20 years. (laughs) And she went, she whittled it down to these 150 perfect pages. Like that's how it felt, uh, reading it. So I'm doubly impressed that it, took you significantly less time than two decades <laughs>
1: <laughs> the three years isn't a short time but I actually now now that I'm um, I'm thinking about the next thing three years seems like a really short time <laughs> um yeah. but I think that time when I wasn't writing was writing Western Lane was really good because I think I must have been thinking about it subconsciously, unconsciously, whatever the right word is.
0: And and forgive Um, me, I want to interrupt, like when you, you went away, you, you wrote something and then went away for a while, like for a long time.
1: I wrote a short story and what remains from the short story is the, the family and the fact that my mother is gone, the squash and a less developed version of the voice, but the story is quite different. I mean, I don't think the short story that I wrote wasn't, I don't think it was really a short story. It was a piece of prose. So I came back to it a year later because I, I showed it to a writer who was kind of, who was working with me as a mentor. And he said, do you actually have a novel on your hands here? And so that's why I started thinking about it as a novel.
0: Who is, the, may I ask who this mentor is?
1: Yes, yes. So in 2018, I think it was, I attended a writing workshop run by The Stinging Fly, which is a journal in Dublin. And it was a one-week course. And the teacher there was Tom Morris, who's an editor at The Stinging Fly and a brilliant writer. And yes, yeah, so I asked him if he would work with me on my stories. And a few months later, we started working together.
0: Wow, okay. And you said that when you came back to the work, to this piece of prose after a significant time away that you picked up from there and then developed the voice of Gopi further. What what changed? Like, how did you, you know, do you know can you think of things or point to things that shifted in the writing of her voice that really brought it into focus?
1: Yeah, um, so after I showed it to Tom, I kind of then, I think I added a bit to the story before I showed it to Tom. And then I left it for another six months. But I think I probably just wasn't ready to write it as a novel at that point. And in those six months, I was reading a lot of stories about children. And quite a lot of them were retrospective narratives. So I read, I think, cover to cover. um, Do you know the Faber book of contemporary books about childhood or contemporary stories about childhood? No. So it's a really thick book of short stories I think most of them are first, I think maybe all of them are first person narratives. So I think that was probably really useful to have just read that and, and other novels. I think that maybe in the story, the voice was getting lost between the the child voice and the the narrator looking back. But I think what gave me the voice was just, I think when I came back to it, I just started writing the first Page which I read out, and that is pretty much as it was when I started writing it. So I think that time away and doing lots of reading and probably thinking unconsciously about it kind of gave me that first page, which was then a kind of tuning fork. Like every time I lost my way, I would go back to that first page.
0: That's a great point. The way that we do that, I I think, like for me anyway, when I'm working on something and I start a new session, like I sit down in the morning or whenever I'm working to get going. I almost have to reread a good chunk of what I've already written to kind of get back into the music of it. And I guess most people probably do that, but with the, with the voice of Gopi, I think it's interesting to hear that, like you read these stories about childhood, Miss Faber book. Mm -hmm. to kind of give you a sense of maybe what happens in childhood or what child perspective is like. But again, this is a retrospective narration, so you don't have to write in the voice of a child necessarily, writing in the voice of an adult looking back on childhood. I feel like that gives you like some obviously some more latitude. And I think it's the right choice, I think, is what I'm getting at because I think it's very hard to write a convincing novel for adults from the perspective of an 11-year-old girl if you're confined to her POV. I mean, it can be done and it can be done beautifully. It's just really hard because you're limited. And I think a lot of times when writers come up against those limitations in child narrators, they just fudge. They make the child way smarter than a child could ever possibly be.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. But I also think children can be way smarter than we give them credit for true um, but, I, but I, I understand what you're saying there
0: I mean it's like yeah and like the child wisdom if it's depicted accurately is wonderful but it's like I don't know this world weariness or <laughs> sometimes you can just you can just feel the author intruding where it's like there's no possible way you know this child I'm sensitive to that for some reason but mm-hmm. I bought Gopi and her story entirely and I think maybe a lesson for writers out there who are thinking about writing a book with you know a child's perspective involved is that even if it's a retrospective narration, it's a looking back, it it was useful to you to read stories about childhood or maybe to read stories where the child POV is centered, you know, because it informs the things that happen in the book. I have to believe like it, it jars memories and gives you some ideas for how kids interact with one another, how sister, I mean, I know you have a bunch of sisters, but uh, yeah. I would have to do that.
1: I know it definitely does because writing it is different from, from living it, I think. And, um, but a lot of those stories were, and I think maybe most of them were, were retrospective narratives. There's a really interesting quote at the, at the beginning of that book. Um, so the introduction was written by Laurie Moore and she quotes Gail Godwin and writes, behind every story that begins, when I was a child, there exists another story in which adults are fighting for their lives. And I just had that in my head kind of at all, all the time that I was writing this
0: book. That's a heavy quote.
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> and my, you know. My I poor kids. Think... <laughs> 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 but is it, I mean, because I, yeah, there's the adults fighting for their lives. I, I always wondered is it is is it the adults in the child's world or is it the adult that this child is going to become and and i I think it's both or i've decided it's both but yeah so i think and that whole the the introduction is the whole introduction in that book is fantastic
0: well i want to talk a little bit more about uh, grief in this book in particular but other things too like difficult emotional stuff in this book And the way that it is delivered in the white space or through gesture or, and I thought this was a very deft way of doing it. Like so much happens where there's like children listening in and hearing like murmuring adults, like from the balcony or wherever it is, you know, this, this felt accurate to me, the way kids like my daughter, like my wife and I can be in the kitchen. Having a conversation at this level of volume, just like trying to have an adult conversation, and my daughter will suddenly just chime in from upstairs, just be like, "What are you talking about?" (laughs) We're just like, "My God, can we have a moment to just like talk about something besides like sixth grade?" You know, and that felt right on to me because that is how it happens, especially around heavy stuff. You know, you have a family that the mother has died, and these kids are young, and the father is awash in grief. And there's so much held close to the vest. There's so much about the grief experience, as we've said, that is personal. It's kind of a lonely journey, Mm -hmm. right? We each do it our own way. And uh, I've seen this happen throughout my life uh, with grief where people just have, there's communication breakdown. People grieve intensely at different times. So you might be having what could be classified like as a good day, right? A good day with your grief where it's not overwhelming you. And your partner, or your sister, or whoever you know, whoever you're in the household with, could be having a terrible day, and so you're at a, a different energy level, and they're at this low ebb, and you don't m- maybe notice it or know how to handle it, or they don't feel like talking, and you do. You know what I'm yeah. saying? There's all these disconnects that happen between human beings that you depict so well, and there's even, I, I mean, there's they're ghostly presences or moments where there's kind of like hints at supernatural i think you talked about it with regard to fourth avenue this neighborhood mangy dog (laughs) but there are other moments i think and forgive me my i'm racing in my brain to remember exactly the moment you'll probably know where they're talking about what is it appearances by their mother or
1: yeah so um kush who's a middle sister starts to she goes very quiet and she starts to go out at night onto the upstairs balcony of the house and trying right. to make contact with the mother and they can tell that it's their mother that she's trying to talk to because she's speaking in gujarati and then there's a moment where gopi also kind of sees sees the mother in the squash, in a squash court
0: right and that felt right on to me kids would definitely do that i could see myself doing that if i was you know 13 years old i'd, I'd be out on the balcony too, you know, (laughs) but there's other, another uh, moment in the book that I loved that has to do with this uh, depiction of grief has to do with the way that we can talk around our grief. And I think adults can do this. I think uh, human beings of any age do this when it comes to stuff like this, but I think maybe kids in particular, because they just don't have maybe the emotional vocabulary for it, you know, it's too much to process almost. And so things get like redirected and there's a, a section of the book where she's holding Ged's hand and she was talking about what, learning about the Oregon trail in school and the, uh, the brutalization, the genocide of native Americans in, uh, the United States. And how Black Elk uh, was the saddest. And all of this is a proxy for her own grief. You know, she's like feeling all these things about this lesson that she's learning about uh, Native American genocide. And again, I I was just like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly how we do it, especially as children. And it's so heartbreaking because she doesn't have the language to say how sad she is. Yeah. (laughs) And so she uses this situation as a kind of, proxy for her own grief. Did you have a particularly strong reaction as a child to the stories of Black Elk? Have you ever read Black Elk Speaks? I remember reading that book yeah, years ago. Yeah, and
1: um, I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which is, yeah, which is really interesting. I, I, yeah, I was really, I was quite obsessed with that, that whole thing. And, and we actually did play the Oregon Trail computer game at, sc- at school. But yeah, I was, I, I think I, I was, I, yeah, I, heartbroken is probably the, the word when I read about what happened. And I don't know, there must have been something in a book that really struck me because that, that's what would have had the most impact on me, I think. Reading something, but I can't remember exactly what, but I remember how much time I spent like then reading about what happened.
0: And all these years later, it works its way into your novel. Like it's just, I love that. That's really how the sausage gets made, right? That's how writers do it. Like it, It's like you're sitting at the keyboard and this moment comes up and suddenly, suddenly it's kind of magical, right? Suddenly she's talking about the Oregon Trail game at school and I don't know, it feels like how it how it happened.
1: I don't, I don't think, I, I've, I've only thought about this quite recently, that that line one of the lines that she quotes from Black Elk is "The center cannot hold," and when I think about the book now, that's what I kind of think about is that that line at the middle in the middle of it.
0: I admire so much the like the quality line by line of this book of, of your writing. And before we move on to other things, I want to go back to this relationship that you have with what's his name, Tom Morris, mm-hmm. the editor at the Stinging Fly. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I'm just wondering, I want to hear a little bit about how you edit your own work, like how you arrived at this finished product. Are you somebody who is like really slow and plotting and just sculpts each line? Or did you write it in a rush and then go back and refine? Did the input from Tom really help you make significant cuts? Do you know what I'm saying? Could you just talk about it? Because I think that especially writerly people will read your book and be impressed in the way that I am impressed and will wonder about this, like getting a book to feel this sharp.
1: I am a plodder. I would say I would really love to be someone who could get the whole thing down. So you've got the shape of something um, really fast and then spend time editing because the editing is what I love. But the way that I wrote this book and quite a few of my stories is that kind of write a little bit, then read the whole thing again and edit it and keep going around and round and round over and over again.
0: Yeah, that's how I, I mean, that sounds very familiar to my process. I feel like an insane person how many times I re, I reread my own work and like we'll sit there and noodle and noodle and noodle. And But it's like the music is so important to me. And I'm wondering, because you say the editing is your favorite part, as you're going back and, you know, here here's a metaphor for you. Just to kind of really muddle all this. Um, <laughs> uh, you know how when you iron clothes, <laughs> you iron a shirt. Yeah. And you're ironing and then you're sliding it over and you're sort of ironing the section that you just ironed before, but maybe a little bit more, and then you know, that's kind of how it feels. You're sort of like pulling anyway. That's <laughs> do you read aloud when you're going through this process each day? Sometimes of sort of getting back in getting back into the voice, because there is such a music to your writing that I admire. It's it's just I loved it. I recognized how much work I think went into it, or how much work I imagined went into it. And thank you. I don't know. I guess that's just like you, having read a ton, are you musical at all?
1: Um, I've tried. Um, uh, even Graham, my partner who loves me, will say that I am tone deaf, so <laughs>
0: yeah, me too. Wouldn't that be nice to be like just a natural? Like, yeah, I love uh, it. Th- there's all these there's all these uh, conversations around natural talent when it comes to writing. i I've, I've heard it argued both ways. I think a lot of writing just comes down to being patient enough to endure the pain. <laughs> <laughs> but man, when you see somebody play an instrument and sing beautifully, there's just no denying that that person is gifted just as blessed with a gift, Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what must it be like to have that? What a, what a magical existence to be able to just open your mouth and sing. And, and to be able to people... do it in
1: a choir, like to sing and sing with other people. I mean, I would love to be able to, to do that and do it well.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I feel like you can kind of hide as long as everybody else is really good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I could, I could probably pass in a, in a big choir, as long as I was like tucked away in the back, like not too close to the microphone, we could, we could pull that off, but I can't really carry a tune. I don't have that gift. And I feel like everybody who doesn't have it, especially artistic people who don't have it, wish that they did. Yeah. So we're left with our writing. And listen, it's a a great consolation prize because there is, like I said, a beautiful uh, musicality to the work. And I could almost feel that wish at work on the page. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) can't sing in that choir, but I can sing here.
1: (laughs) Um, So Tom, uh, Tom, I guess, going back to your question, we we talked a lot about uh, what the book might might look like. And he, he just recommended loads and loads of, stories and books for me to read. And then I sent him I think the first in chunks like the first 30 or 40 pages he just said just keep going and then and then he read it at the end. So I think he'd done a lot of work with me like when he read the short story and just talking to me about what I might read and, and that kind of thing.
0: You know it's funny that you say that because I've heard this before on this show talking to somebody about their relationship with their editor and how the editor did such a nice job helping them and it wasn't so much a line edit though occasionally that was the case but it was a reading of the work and the ability to recommend things to read with like uncanny Accuracy and helpfulness. Like, ooh, okay, I see what you're doing here. Read this. Yeah. <laughs> and then the writer would go and read, and that would be the fuel yeah. that, that would help inform the choices that the writer herself or himself would then make to improve the thing rather than the editor imposing, yeah. you know, view, viewpoints or opinions. And I wouldn't always. That might be so. a, I was just going to say that might be a great way to do it, you know, from an editorial perspective. Like, uh, you know, if you're working with a writer who's gifted and willing to do the work it's probably almost better just to nudge them in the direction of work that will speak to what they're doing rather than to try to give them directives.
1: Yeah. And especially when it's an editor who can see so clearly what you're going to connect with, what books you're going to connect with. And, but I I wouldn't necessarily know, okay, what, what is it I'm supposed to learn from this, this book, but because Tom's given it to me, I'm reading it with a very different attention. So it was like doing a MA or something for a year, like working working with him, with him to kind of just pushing me and challenging me to think about what what I want to write.
0: What about the, like we've talked, I've talked so much about this, but I, I feel like it had to have come into play in the editorial process. The, the stuff that doesn't get said or talked about, I feel like maybe to a degree, like to a, a strong degree, this family, Pa and the three girls at home, there is some repression of emotion. There's so many silences. Uh, pa is such a heartbreaking character. He loves his daughters. He's overwhelmed <laughs> with grief, you know, and he's a kind man and he'll just be sitting there. And the creative choices that you made, to depict, like you could have easily done it differently where he's like talking about it or vocalizing it to, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Aunt Ranjan or Uncle Pavan, you know, there's different ways to do it. But so much of the grief experience in this family is depicted through avoidances, oblique converse, you know, conversations or statements that sort of touch on it or hint at it, but never get to it strange silences between father and daughter like father and Gopi sitting in the living room and she's kind of she has access to her thoughts and you're kind of like getting access to what she's thinking about saying but doesn't quite say there's so much of that and it's so beautifully done i'm thinking about it in comparison to my family i feel like we would just be blathering constantly (laughs) (laughs) uh you know but i like i don't know did you grow up in a like a family where think like people were quiet this way or maybe didn't get demonstratively emotional a lot
1: yeah I'd say my family are pretty quiet um like I mean joyful very often but generally quiet wow yeah
0: what must that be like <laughs> <laughs> How love <laughs> um see this is the thing about it is that when it comes to grief or difficult stuff I think that the knee-jerk way of thinking about it from like a pop psychology perspective is that it's like wow you know it it's a good idea it's better to just let your feelings be known it's better to talk things out verbalize them i don't know if that's always the case and i think that it can be a virtue sometimes to withhold especially if you're feeling emotional you know I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a fine line between repression that is actually harmful and over, over talking or talking when you're too emotional in a way that might upset others or lead to conflict. Do you know what I'm getting at? Like it's not a simple clean cut thing.
1: I think the girls probably need more from their father in terms of communication. But he does give them something, and that's that's the squash, uh, you know to to a big extent where where they are kind of moving around one another in a in a rhythm and learning to be in sync with one another. and
0: and being and being physical, like just like exercising as a way of relieving yes. stress and just having something to do, I think, as a child, especially with all that kid energy. It's, good, it's not It's not a bad choice yeah. by Pa to have them out exercising and having a kind of discipline in that way.
1: And it gives, and, and Gopi in particular, I think, is expressing herself on, on the squash court and re, you know, getting that release. There's something that Jahangir Khan said in his book, which I'll try to remember. Um, sport is the easiest and best way of keeping young people out of trouble, whatever you put into a child's mind he will use put squash there um so i think that's come from his 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 experience which pa would be quite aware of as well
0: Mm. and i just want to say a word in defense of pa being a little bit emotionally withdrawn from his daughters and maybe not giving them as much comfort and emotional support as they need i get that but he's a kind man and he's not a yeller he's not demonstratively angry at least not in the book that I can recall I always felt like he was sweet and well-intentioned and I feel like he deserves credit for that
1: (laughs) yeah I love him (laughs) Um,
0: yeah 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 I mean I feel like uh like as a parent I always tell myself this I think it's like way more important what you do than what you say like the example that you set is just going to be way stickier than any like lectures you're going to give your kid or you know, you start pontificating or trying to quote unquote, share wisdom. It's like, it's a disaster most of the time, but how you are day to day, how you behave, how you carry yourself, how you treat other people, especially in the family, the way that you handle your emotions, these things factor hugely, I think, into how children learn and learn to process the world. So I get it. Like PA could, could be warmer at times and more helpful. But I think in many of the most important ways he, he did okay, especially considering what he was up against.
1: Yeah. And he's, he's going through what he's going through for the first time as well. Yeah. So yeah, he's in a very over like I think you used the word overwhelmed and that's exactly it. He's, he's, he's overwhelmed by what he's going through, but he's not, he's not completely forgetting his girls and he's there. He's,
0: doing the best doing the best he can you know everybody in a situation like that everybody hopefully finds a way but it's never there's no perfect way to grieve right Mm -hmm. like is there is there a handbook i'm sure when (laughs) you lost your mother you as a person who is bookish you probably picked up books which has been a consistent theme i should add throughout this conversation every time i've been like were you a squash player as a child? Like You're like, actually, no. I just read this guy's book. He explained it to me. <laughs> you know, like, like it sounds like you often turn to books when there are things that you need to know and might not have access to or uh, real insight into. Is grief something you've read a lot about, like the grieving process?
1: I think more recently, and, and probably not nonfiction, but novels. And sometimes they're not the processing of grief, but they're just this is what happened to a child who had had lost somebody like a really like stunning my favorite book that i read and was kind of i guess a touchstone for for me was the ice palace i don't know if you've read by who's that by by, um Take Vesos, um norwegian about two 11 year old girls, one of, one of the girls has lost her mother and she's gone to live with her aunt and you kind of have both of their voices. I think it's in the third person, you have both of the voices in the story. And there's just this very delicate, very strange friendship between the two girls. And then you have this community around them that are kind of both trying to look after them and also leaving them alone. Uh, yeah it's just a very very beautiful book and I think one of the things I think it's something I do naturally but I think I when I started reading more attentively I think what Tahir Vesas does in that book is really inhabit the girl's bodies and that's where you you can feel as a reader you can feel what they're feeling because he's right Right in there, and there's there's scenes where even now I don't I don't know what is going on, like these amazing scenes where I don't know what is going on with these two girls, but I feel like I understand it.
0: Well, I, that's how I felt reading your book. So maybe you internalized whatever you found in the Ice Palace. You know, this dynamic, they found a way to kind of make that happen uh, on the page. But it's uh, it's really beautifully done, but. Yeah. before I let you go I want to ask you a little bit about your life I read that you were born in Kenya
1: yeah so all of all of my um brothers and sisters and I and my mom and dad were born in Kenya
0: and then came to the UK when
1: um I was one um so 1973 oh, okay. 72 so yeah, wait 73
0: when do you where do you fall like six kids in the family are you the youngest mm-hmm. oh you're the baby yeah What's that like? Five, <laughs> five older siblings? Oh, they
1: so. spoil me. <laughs> like even now, um, if if there's a party, like um, uh, they, they spoil, like, they, yeah. If we're all together, they spoil me. If I go to one of their houses, they spoil me. So yeah. Well, lucky so, you. So yeah. <laughs>
0: you, you guys are close?
1: Yeah. And we, apart from my brother, who's now, who now lives in America, we all live not that far from each other, like a train ride. So we see each other.
0: And you're in, you're in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What part, I was just in London, uh, earlier this year. I took my daughter for like her first trip, you know, big trip just to see it. And I had a great time. Wow. It's a lovely city. Did she, what
1: does she think? How old is, how old is she?
0: She was 12 or I guess at the time we went, she was 11. My wife was like, you better take her now. <laughs> Once she, she's going to cross over soon. She won't want to hang out with us. <laughs> and you know what? She might be right. It was a good time. She was still, she was very sweet. And then we went to Paris, and I proceeded to uh, fall off of a bike and break my kneecap. Which, thank God, happened on the second to last day. It was the second to last day, so we got our trip in. But you know, her memory is having to pack my suitcase for me and push me through the airport in a wheelchair. Oh, well,
1: she's going to remember that holiday, though.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's why I did it. I broke my knee just so she would have something to write about later. Uh, but what part of London? I'm just curious.
1: Um, so I I'm in Archway near the Holloway Road. The North London.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I took her up to uh, Hampstead Heath. Oh, yeah. We took the bu- took the bus up there and walked around in that park up there. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So it's it's a walking distance from from where I am. So well, lunchtime, quite often there.
0: Oh wow. Okay, that's a great spot. Mm-hmm. And there were people swimming in that mm-hmm. pond when we were there, and it was like freezing. March. <laughs> yeah, it was freezing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, they don't stop. <laughs> they don't stop. Okay, and then. You won the Plimpton Prize for not for this book, correct? It was for a story. For a story.
1: Or... Yeah. I'll bring Tom back into it because um, when I finished the book, he was like, okay, you need to write something else. like with the energy from this, like, do you need Do you want a deadline? And I was like, okay. So he gave me a deadline. I wrote a short story, which is probably one of the fastest. Like a lot of my stories take years to write, but that one I probably wrote in a month or something pretty much finished in that time
0: uh the plimpton prize is a like a paris review literary prize and i just want my listeners to have a sense of like how you did all this like you get from you know growing up in the uk uh, i read that you worked as an accountant or maybe you still worked as an work as an accountant is um, that
1: right i i'm not at the moment so i um left my job about a year ago
0: okay but you're writing in, you know, day job as an accountant, and now here you are making this debut, getting reviewed in the New York Times. it? Was there a long period of apprenticeship where you were sort of just in the wilderness writing stuff that never saw the light of day?
1: I started writing properly probably nine or 10 years ago. So I think before then I had written two or three short stories, but probably only spent like a day in total on them. But there was clearly like an impulse to write because I kept going back. But then, yeah, probably nine or ten years ago, mostly writing short stories. I think there was a, a novel I tried to write, which I was, didn't go anywhere. Um, I I made myself finish it even when I knew halfway through that I my heart wasn't in it. But I just finished when I'd done a one draft um, and then I wrote short stories, of rejections, and then um, a couple of acceptances for a journal and a prize around the same time. Um, then I kept writing short stories. My hit rate with short stories is really low, so I can write like ten stories, and one or two of them be good. And by good, I mean they kind of feel alive, and maybe one of those would would then go somewhere. And so I was working all that time to writing mostly in the mornings. Some of that time I was working part time, so I wouldn't be working on a Monday. So I'd write on a Monday as well, just to get some momentum for the week.
0: Wow. Okay. And what nine or 10 years ago kick started all of this? Like, did you just, was it something you'd always kind of wanted to do? And finally, you're like, okay, I'm not getting any younger. Let's, let's get going. Or was there something that happened um, like in your life or at work that made you decide that you needed to start doing this?
1: I was always trying out like, things where you're making something like uh, like I, I tried playing guitar. I tried piano. I tried singing. I tried, uh, art and photography. And I think, I think I did a, a weekend workshop or something, a writing workshop, and I don't know, something must've clicked that, um, this is, this is what I'd really like to do. And I probably got, I probably felt that I don't know why it came so late. That I thought that I realised that this is the thing where I actually have maybe more of a sense of what's good. Whereas, you know, with art, I really like the process of drawing and I like how it feels when you're involved in something and really concentrating, like with a drawing or something. But I don't I don't go to lots of art galleries and you know, all my life I haven't been someone who who looks at a lot of art. So I don't have the sense of okay this is what I like this is what's good this is my taste or whatever whereas I've always read so it's probably natural and and I've always listened to music but like I said I'm tone deaf so I can't um so writing is the thing that I think I had a chance at and
0: it's also I mean it does allow you to kind of synergize these other things there is a visual aspect to it there is a musical aspect to it
1: Mm, yeah
0: and you have to be a deep reader to write books and you seem like the kind of person who's always read right I mean going back to childhood
1: yeah yeah always um I mean I think all of my brothers and sisters read but we would have in the house like science fiction and fantasy and I don't know do you have mills and boons over there um like these I haven't
0: p- seen it but we probably kind of, do kind the
1: really really yeah r- romance novels that that um are kind of trashy detective novels so a lot of genre fiction is what I kind of grew up on
0: was there a writer as you got older that really knocked you out you know like we all have our little Pantheon, personal pantheon of writers but are there writers that you can point to who are super influential
1: I don't know actually I think it was it was all of them <laughs> it was just it was just like literature and books I mean I remember loving the Moomins have you ever read the Moomins
0: I, yeah I, uh, I've heard of that
1: um, so is that,
0: um, a, is that a kid's book?
1: Yeah, by um Tove Tofi Jansen. Um Oh right, 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 yeah. And she, but she but I love her adult fiction as well. I think she's she's great. But the Wait, mo-
0: but no, she she does the summer
1: Yeah, the summer book. The winter book. The
0: summer book. The winter book. Then, okay, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, the uh, Nor- Norwegian. Is
1: yeah, that right? Or Swedish? Uh, oh. I have a mental block. Um, yeah, you and me
0: both. But Scandinavian, That's yeah, right. Scandinavian,
1: and but the the Moomin books stand the test of time. Like I would read them now and think, wow, this is great. And they're they're books about family, so there is a family of Moomin Moomins and Moomin trolls. <laughs> but but honestly, you should you should read like Moomin Papa at Sea or something. It's just they're great.
0: I need to read. I need to read those books. I've been recommended those books multiple times before. I just. Uh... I don't I don't believe what's the author's name again Tove Jansen? yeah is she still with us I want to say she's no longer with us right
1: I don't know actually I I, I often yeah. don't know anything about the writers that I like
0: okay I think I, I have this memory of I just read something I think by Sheila Hetty not too long ago about Tove Jansen and I want to say she passed away Which would make her ineligible for the Other People podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But if she's not, uh, get her on. (laughs) I was going to say, because the only books that I read are for authors who are on the show, just as a function of time. So it's Mm. like, if I'm going to read these books, I'm going to, you know, I got to take a vacation or something. (laughs) You can read them um, to your kids. Yeah, that's right. So I have to believe that you were thrilled to be kind of working in the wilderness. With your mentor, getting this book done, getting this short story done, and then what? You sent it off to the Paris Review, and it wins this prize. You entered it. How do you win the Plimpton Prize?
1: So, uh, my my agent submitted the book to the Paris Review. The book not. Oh wait. The story. The story. The story to Paris Review.
0: You had an agent. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. How did, how did you get an agent if you hadn't published anything? Or I guess you published some so- some stories?
1: Yeah. So um, she'd read a story in The Stinging Fly and, and she knew Tom as well. So she knew I was writing a novel and then waited until I'd finished the novel because she knew I didn't want to think about publication until then, I suspect, and got in touch.
0: Okay. So she submits it to the Paris Review. Mm-hmm. It wins the Plimpton Prize.
1: Well, it was published in, in one of their issues. And then the Plimpton Prize, as they go back over the fiction that they've published in the year, I think it's emerging writers, and then choose one of the stories, which then.
0: And so what does that lead to? Like, I, I know they, 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 they throw a party for you, right? Like suddenly you're in New York City and. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I went uh, to New York last year. So there's a party and it's, it's, it's an event where they're also presenting the Hadada prize, which is a lifetime award for an author. Um, so Jamaica Kincaid won that um, this year or last year. Yeah. And then it's kind of a fundraising event as well.
0: That must've been pretty heady to show up in New York. And... I know
1: it was, it was very exciting. And um, yeah, I think I was like, it was one of those holidays where I was just like anxious until, until like I'd. I, had, I gave, like, a one-minute speech or something, but until that was over, like, it was like, no, I'm just anxious. I'm not enjoying this yet. <laughs> and then that was once done, I... and I was like, okay, where's the champagne?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, so. there you go. Good for you. Yeah, that, like, having to make a speech, oof, especially for something like that. Like, you had to talk about your work? Like, is that what you had to do, or just thank everybody?
1: It was It was mainly a thank you.
0: Okay.
1: Uh,
0: um, yeah. And um, did that lead, once you won, you win this prize, does this lead to publication in north america like where did like the western oh lane, like no
1: no with, um so my agent had already sold she sold the book in the uk and in north america before the blimson prize before oh, before man. before the story was published in the paris review
0: and what was the sales process like for western lane did it go out and immediately get snatched up or was it a fight
1: it was relatively quick i think
0: doesn't surprise me <laughs> It's an undeniable book. It's a great book. Uh, were you thrilled? Where were you when you found out that it had sold?
1: I think I was in this room, probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were in this exact chair. Yeah, it, I was email. exactly
1: here, probably doing some accountancy or something. <laughs> so.
0: And yeah. you get a phone call or an email?
1: It would, be, it would have been a phone call. Yeah.
0: Do you remember anything about how you responded? You seem pretty together. Like It's not like you're going to do a, a dance or something. <laughs>
1: you know I don't know it's a really difficult um thing I'm trying to you know how like publication is a roller coaster there's lots of things you start to become anxious about you know is this going to be the best book am I going to look back on it in a year and think oh I should have done this or that and then you've got like the highs and I have to try really hard to not kind of identify too much with the highs and the lows and just try and be a bit more steady. I don't think it's good for me to to go too high or go too low. So
0: I always ask uh, my guests if they are working on anything new. I know that this one is just coming out. So if, if you're just uh, celebrating this one, that's fine. But is there another book in the works?
1: Um, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I might have said maybe, but... Yeah, I think I I was working on something and it just kind of collapsed. So that was a bit of a shame, but actually now I feel a bit more free. Like I feel quite happy to just think, what do I really want to to write or see what comes?
0: Well, and you never know. This thing that collapsed, you could go, you know, wander back into the rubble as it were a year from now. And it could be something, you know, totally new to you. So I will be... Awaiting whatever it is that you come up with next. I loved your book. Uh, So impressive. And I thank you for your time. We should also let listeners know that truly for maybe the first time, like I can count on one hand, two, maybe three times in 800 episodes, I have spaced the time of an interview. And I was like a half an hour late for this one. And you are very kind and patient with me. I thank you for not just like going to bed and saying to hell with this guy. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't put that past me. <laughs> well, thank you so much once again and congratulations.
1: Thank you. Um it means a lot to me um that you read the book and love the book and um I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you.
0: All right, everybody. There we have it. That was Chetna Maru. Great conversation with her. The novel is called Western Lane. It is available now in North America in hardcover from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. If you would like to find Chetna Maru on the internet, I believe she has an Instagram presence. That's all I could find. Again, the novel is called Western Lane. Go get your copy. Just trust me on this one. Available now from FSG. The other people podcast needs your support. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get other people, t-shirts, sweatshirts, onesies for your child, you can do that at, uh, just go to other You'll see the t-shirt. Just scroll down. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter that I do once a week. I will show up in your inbox once a week. You can sign up for the newsletter. It's free over at otherppl.com or at bradlisty.com. If you would be so kind, please rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen to this podcast. You can watch this podcast on the Other People YouTube channel. Be sure to hit the subscribe button or watch clips on Instagram, TikTok, or on Twitter. The Twitter handle for the show is at otherppl. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to read my book, my novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there now waiting for you. You can also get the audio book. I narrate it. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Up next on the program, a conversation with Rebecca Mackay. She has a new novel out. It's very buzzy. It's called I Have Some Questions for You. This is Rebecca McKay's first time on the podcast. Very pleased to welcome her to the show coming up next.